Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. YouTube, you guys are a pain in the ass already. (laughs) I have about a dozen different windows open right now trying to keep track of all this shit. This is going to be interesting. Yes, I used interesting already five seconds in. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, boy. Good, good work, Nick. You can do it. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined, as always, by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, hey Nick. Nick. Hey. Hey, viewers. We can wave at real people now. We can <laughs> wave. <laughs> um, he's headed to China. What? Interesting. More U.S. beef headed to China. I don't know what that means. I don't really want to click on that. That seems scary to me. Um, Anyways, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. If you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, want to see what we're up to, um, how we plan on complicating the stream more and more every week, uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast itself you'll find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com, um, which uh, you can find a direct link on our social channel. So definitely check that out. Uh, hoodies, T-shirts, mugs, uh, things like that. Um, and then I completely forgot about the YouTube thing. So are you? we started up our YouTube channel. Uh, we're going to be broadcasting live every week from Facebook and YouTube. Uh, so check that out. We normally broadcast on Wednesdays around 4.30 Central. Um, so throw some comments in, uh, questions in in the chat or anything like that. Uh, and we'll try and respond to you guys uh, and make it a little bit more interactive. Although no promises, because we're just, you know, the technology, we're just, Nick is just holding <laughs> on right now. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I have a soundboard too. <laughs> So, I don't, did you hear that? No. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Never mind then. Want, uh, Looking forward to the sound bar next week. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's problem. What you don't hear China? You hear China? No. Oh, no. God damn it! All right. Well, never mind then. <laughs> this is going to be interesting because the speed round bell is now in this thing too. So I'm assuming you're not going to hear that either. Um, I'm going to check one. We, thing. we don't ever listen to the speed round bell anyway. So <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. It's just a recommendation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of a, a wild week to, uh, to say the least, uh, light therapy. And, uh, you know, I threw a splash of bleach in here, you know, just to be on the Smart. safe side. Um, yep, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about if you guys can see on the actual episode right now, um, the, the president's rhetoric over the past week. Uh, changes to the Iran nuclear deal, at least according to uh, the uh, the administration, the U.S. administration. 
a little bit of potential bipartisanship, which I don't believe is actually true, but you know, we can talk about it. Uh, and then Biden, you know, he's, he's an interesting guy and there's some interesting news kind of floating around right now. So we'll touch on that and a few other things. Uh, but Bill, can you give us a rundown of, um, why he would say such stupid, stupid things. <laughs> of course. So we all know that from time to time, President Trump says troubling things. We here at Barstool Politics try not to obsess over each and every one. Yet when the president suggests we should look into injecting bleach and sunlight into our bodies, or when he goes on a long rant about revoking journalist Nobel, not Nobel, prize, we feel compelled to weigh in. To refresh everyone's memories, last Thursday during the White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing, an official presented the results of the U.S. government research that indicated the coronavirus appeared to weaken more quickly when exposed to sunlight, heat, and disinfectants. While noting that he was not a doctor, Trump did pontificate about whether we could find a way to inject inside uh, disinfectants as well as a way to find to bring light inside the body. This is one where it's better to hear it straight from Trump. Nick, go to the tape. All right. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. Then I see the disinfectant. <laughs> it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by <laughs> injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it. There's a tremendous number of so it'd be interesting to check this. Ask you to start quick. <laughs> All right, so we, we'll come back to that. But then on Sunday, Trump once again brought attention to his rhetoric when, a, when in a series of tweets, he lashed out at the news media, telling them that they should, quote, return their Nobel Prize for the reporting on Russia, and he could give the Nobel Committee a very com comprehensive list of those he deemed real reporters. This occurred during a week in which the New York Times released a study of the more than 260,000 words spoken by Trump during the pandemic. It was a revealing study that identified self-congratulation as by far the largest category of presidential expression, dwarfing instances of empathy or appeal to national unity. Given all of this, we thought it useful to once again examine Trump's rhetoric. It's also important to note that this week we saw some real signs that Republicans are worried that Trump's erratic briefings are a sinking ship that could cause them to lose both the presidency and the Senate. Phil, Trump said that he didn't mix up Nobel and Noble. He was trying to be sarcastic. That's believable, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there's so many elements to, to that. I, and I mean, some of them are just kind of quick points, but maybe we can sort of come back around to it. But just to kind of touch on some of the stuff here, to, to say that he didn't confuse Nobel and Noble, that he meant to call it the Nobel Prize, <laughs> which makes no sense. That the Pulitzer it, is the Nobel Prize now. <laughs> right. So mm -hmm. he's, he's confused the Nobel and the Pulitzer. He's he's referred to the, he's misspelled the Nobel, all sorts of stuff that that is a problem there. To come, around, to come out and say that he was just being sarcastic is the classic defense, right? When you say something that you mean to be funny and people are just offended, you're like, no, I was kidding. I was being sarcastic. Um, yeah, he wasn't being sarcastic. <laughs> he got them confused. Uh, I mean, all of that brings up the idea that, uh, you know, the president, even if that is his defense, the president shouldn't be using, shouldn't, the purpose of his briefing shouldn't be, you know, sarcasm, sarcasm, right? It should be to, to actually brief people. Uh, you know, to go back to the light and the the uh, the disinfectant stuff. I mean, we've talked a lot on this podcast over three years that Trump is heavily influenced by the last thing he heard. And, and there were stories that came out that this, you know, this briefing or this report had been presented to him right before this. And so 
he's not a deep thinker. He's not, you know, digging into the, the, the information he was given this report and he's a bullshitter, right? I mean, so he went out and he was bullshitting. He was just saying the, you know, this is, these are terms he, he had just heard. He thinks it's going to make him look smart. And in fact, it, it reveals that he doesn't really know, you know, anything about what's actually going on. I mean, I, there's so many aspects of this we can talk about. We can talk about the rhetoric he's using. We can talk about the impact of it. You sent me an article earlier today, Bill, about uh, the role of the press in all of this. I mean, wh- which angle do you all want to to go down? What do you, how do you all want to talk about this? I, mean, I think all of them are really, really interesting. Yeah, right? yeah. Maybe just to start, yeah, just to kind of hit the, the 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 disinfectant, the heat, and the the Nobel and Nobel. Um, it's just it's it's stunning how ill informed he is on things. And and I get right, I get that it's possible that if you're not a, in the, in the medical profession, that you know this idea of bleach and heat that it's it's interesting, right? And it's again, I got to stop using that word. Um, it's you know that it, it could be a solution, but you got to know that at the press conference you can't bring this up and throw out theories without at least thinking about them a little bit. It's it's just, it's sort of stunning how poorly informed he is on these topics. And again, I think there are some things that Trump is really good at, but knowing scientific facts is certainly not one of them, but he has no fear of spreading those. Mm. It's um, (laughs) like, I can easily see the conversation 10 minutes before he he went on on uh, in front of the press saying, you know, there are specific treatments where you can use ultraviolet light and you can use it internally to have some sort of effect and using uh, disinfectants and a, a more um, holistic approach uh, in society. And, you know, we can do this and this and, and combine these different things. And there are ways that this can be more effective than what we're doing right now. And that I'm not necessarily sure that it's that he didn't get the information, but he he picks and chooses specific things within a conversation and points that sound really uh, that 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 grab him, I guess. And he thinks would grab other people, um, not in the physical way, uh, but um, it's uh, it, it's just like I was looking when I first, when I saw the, the, the first tweet uh, about the Nobel thing. Like, okay, like it's, it's dumb. I, I get that, you know, it's not that. And as soon as the Nobel committee thing came out, I got like, why dude, you, yeah. you, you had plausible deniability there. There's an element of why I get that he's, he's an attention seeker and he wants to be out front and, you know, a, a president in, in most situations should be that, that person. But I just, it, this was such a, 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 just a string of horrendous things that really were not doing anything for his credibility, the credibility of the task force, uh, the credibility of the federal government's response to what's going on. Um, I'm, I'm really thankful that he's not going to be doing these briefings anymore, but I'd also like to, um, I'd also going down the, uh, the media route. Um, I was, I was actually having discussions and I got into an argument with, with one of my friends about, who is more culpable for the behavior of of uh, society and, and and people who are or who are influenced by this? Is the president the be all end all of who we should be listening to? Which most people would think yes, but it seems to me that more people are going to end up listening to a message filtered through some type of pundit. Um, you know, Chris Cuomo being one of them, mm-hmm. uh, he didn't have a good week with this shit either. Um, talking about 
staying home and people who are going out are reprehensible. And, you know, we all need to pitch in while he's biking around his uh, Hamptons property and infecting his family while he's supposedly been in the basement for a month straight or something like that. Um, so I, I, I don't know as, as much as I think the president's actions and, and rhetoric are, can be harmful to me. It was you know, all right. Like, just stop saying shit. You got to get out of these briefings and, and let the professionals deal with this for a little while. Um, but this immediately gets thrown into uh, the political blender and gets it's gets extruded into partisan talking points. It, it never had a chance anywhere else. So I, I like I don't know. I I have my personal instinct is that the media has more of an influence over how people react to this and you know what um, the uh, the the level of of severity <clears throat> that actually comes out of a statement like this where it probably could have just kind of gone by the wayside and just been a stupid joke well i mean i think that's the, the transition this is really good to think about the role of the media and who bears responsibility and the, yeah the piece i sent to phil today was one from the washington post by margaret sullivan uh and she was talking about whether the media will his, whether how history will remember the media and basically saying that they bear some responsibility not to cover some of this to to say enough is enough especially when you think about what we've spent our time on and should we really be debating um you know nobel versus nobel prizes and should we really be talking about disinfected is there not a point where we say enough of this and we're not going to give him that platform I, I i'm curious about your both of your perspectives on this because i'm deeply deeply torn on this this is you know the president of the united states we're in a pandemic my default position is always to allow the president to speak but I, there were some really cogent arguments for saying maybe we shouldn't phil i don't know what's what's your what's your take on the role of media and all this um you, you know i we've i've said before that, that one of my favorite ideas is that um blame can be distributed without being divided right so that mm -hmm. that's the idea that you know if you and i both go and commit a murder we're not each responsible for a half a murder we can both be murderers in that in that <laughs> instance so this is an example of where blame can be distributed without being divided and that i is it is it irresponsible is it problematic that the president of the united states is saying this stuff absolutely um he whether you know whether you like him or not he is in a position of authority that's the reason that we're having these these uh these um uh whatever afternoon press conferences i guess is what they technically are are briefings corona um, cocktail hour yeah <laughs> there there's evidence you know i haven't seen like actual numbers but there were a, a number of reports of like increases in calls to poison control centers i don't think like out the you know through the roof type stuff but they, this hasn't it does have an impact um the president should be measured in the stuff he says uh, and so I think absolutely Donald Trump does, does hold responsibility for this. It was the same thing with the, whatever, chloroquine stuff or whatever that he was, you know, uh, harping on a few weeks ago that now a number of studies have come out and said that it, it makes no, it, it, if it makes any difference, it's in the negative, in a negative way. Um, but yeah, at the same time, I think, you know, the media, the media's coverage of this, it's not that there's nothing to cover. I think the media should be covering uh, these briefings and should be covering this story and they should be critical of the administration. But we have gotten into this, um, 
I don't know. It, it feels like a, you know, a Facebook style of media journalism stuff rather than than having a report in which you're critical of the Trump administration for their failure to produce tests or for their failure to operate the CDC efficiently or for its, you know, whatever. You know, there's there were a number of good reports and and the 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 article you sent me even brought this up. There's like this dual this this split that's emerging. You have the New York Times and the Washington Post who are publishing really good you know, reports on, you know, the last two months, the the briefings that the president saw that were warning about this and that they didn't respond to, you know, you can do all sorts of interesting reporting on the failure to come up with testing capability or, you know, comparing it to other countries. Those seem like valid things. The, the, it's not that, it's not that the president said something really, you know, stupid or dangerous isn't a valid story, but it feels like we pay disproportionate amount of attention to that. And so that that like we're off chasing the squirrel instead of, you know, actually focusing in on on the the elements that are reportable. And and there are there have been a few reporters who have done that, who have pushed the president on very specific things. He's really good at attacking the press or pushing back when they ask those hard questions. But the press should be, you know, they shouldn't fall, they shouldn't play his game, right? Yeah. And every now and then you see a reporter who does it well and you think, well, that's how it should be done. Um, and it kind of reveals the extent to which, you know, we've gotten used to this, <clears throat> this new kind of form of journalism. It's such a tough balance because I, I'm torn as a political scientist. I want as much of the president as I can get, right? Because that's all data. And I, 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 I've mentioned I sit through these things because it helps me understand the president. But that doesn't mean that everybody should be getting everything about about Trump. Um, I mean, you think about, you know, I think they talked about it somewhere. I read it today that during the Cold War, uh, presidents, you know, the heat of the Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, all these moments that the president would come to come to the major news networks and ask for 20 minutes. And that was a big deal. And it wasn't regularly. And Trump is now getting an hour to two hours a day of unfettered, unfiltered branding. And that's, I mean, that's what's happening right now. It's very little evidence about the coronavirus. The medical professionals aren't getting a ton of time. It's Trump being what he's good at, which is branding his administration. So yeah, I think there is this divide where I don't know how I don't know how you make those choices, but I think we're at a point where some should be made. Well, I mean, how are they going to because he's he's stated at this point that he's going to stop doing the briefings if they continue in some capacity with the rest of the coronavirus task force or other medical experts or pretty much anybody but him is the news media going to start broadcasting that, you know, unfettered. I mean, I think that'll that's a that's a big determining factor in all of this. That's not as newsworthy. Listen, I mean, Anthony Fauci's fantastic. I want to hear that guy talk, but it doesn't have the same ratings effect as right. listening to Donald Trump, which is really telling. Right. Because the whole idea of these press briefings is that they are supposed to be about conveying important uh, information about the coronavirus. So if Trump steps back and leaves it up to Burks and Fauci and all these other people, they should actually be more informative. Right. That should be a better like in terms of what the whole idea is to, to convey newsworthy information, mm -hmm. it should be better. But the fact that they that you remove Trump from it and it becomes less of a you know ratings type of thing reveals the motivation, and that that is that is a problem. I mean, I, it's it's a dilemma, and I don't I, I blame the the news media for it in that it affects their ratings, but it is also the world we live in, right? They have to get ratings. That's how they get the money to do the reporting that they do. And so um, it's a, it's a, 
you know, a conundrum. It's a paradox that I don't know how you, I mean, I think that's how you end up with the sort of two streams of reporting from the Washington Post and New York Times, the stuff that's sort of scintillating and the stuff that's kind of hard hitting journalism. The one thing I would disagree with Margaret Sullivan's piece about saying the media shouldn't be doing this is that there is this deeper question of whether the president should still be president, right? There is this question of whether he, you know, whether we're talking about the 25th Amendment or, I mean, and, and his competency, his ability to do this anymore. And when the president can, you know, says that you should be injecting bleach in the body and he makes all of these mistakes, there, it's a reasonable conversation to have to say, is he still up to the job? And so I think there's part of that, but there's so much of this that um, I, I don't know. I don't know how you draw those lines. It, it's just, it's not easy. I, my issue is that even uh, talking about the 24 hour news cycle and the way news organizations operate in a, in a situation like this. Yes, there are some reporters that are trying to do hard hitting journalism and ask the president tough questions and get the information that we need. There are plenty of others that don't do that. And then on top of that, you have an entirely other medium, uh, namely social media, where those reporters and most reporters will go out and give an even more uh, biased representation of what happened, how they feel the president treated them. Um, what this, you know, means for the network and, and what it means for uh, reporting on the president. Um, you know, they have they have uh, a lower uh, media overall has a lower approval rating than Congress at this point, which is um, problematic, to say the least. Uh, I, I just the, the way that a, a pandemic uh, or the 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 24 hour news cycle and the way that these organizations are built uh, are not made for something that is this focused. Um, there, there's not, there's frankly not enough to report about, and they just have to fill, they have right. to fill the void. And I think you're seeing a lot more, um, you know, scandalous, I wouldn't say disinformation, but, uh, a, a creative way of, of spinning what's being presented. And trust me, there are plenty of dumb, idiotic things that are being said, but extrapolating that and, and making that into more than it probably should be, I think is more harmful than just broadcasting the information and leaving it as is. Because Trump is perfect for this world, right? Trump can fill space. Trump can, you know, every day there's more and more news. There's more things to talk about. He is absolutely wonderful for MSNBC and Fox News. But but for the country, that's a very, very different thing. Mm -hmm. I'm also struck by, you know, you think about, um, you know, Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, the former leader. Uh, he used to do these shows called Allo Pre Presidente. He did them once a week. You know, they were two hour, basically variety shows. And everybody thought they were bonkers. And he would just come on and he would talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. They would go on for an hour, two hours, three hours. That's what we've drifted to. But it's every day. Right. Trump comes on. I mean, maybe not anymore. It sounds like they finally realized and maybe that's something we could talk about that how disastrous these are. But we're getting unfiltered Trump for hours every day and everybody's tuning it in. I mean, this is this is something that dictators dream about. And all of a sudden you have a media just saying we're going to play that game. Mm -hmm. And and I think to some extent that works to Trump's advantage. Right. The more that we're sitting here talking about, can you believe what he said? the less we're talking about the policy failures, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And which is, which is, you know, there, there is, like I said, there's been really good reporting on the, the, you know, the, the Trump administration was briefed on this stuff months in advance and nothing was done. And, you know, there's, there's real, you know, 
real issues that could be brought up with the handling of this, but we get so focused on the the superficial, you know, entertainment tonight aspect of things. That so, but that brings up another question, which is that so Trump, uh, you know, is now talking about because this has gone badly, his numbers have fallen. Um, you know, it, it doesn't. He, he's not doing well in the polls. Uh, at the end of last week, there was this, you know, push to quit doing that, to quit doing, and you mentioned this in the topic that Republicans see this as a potential disaster coming. Um, is that the, so I, there's this argument that says all of this sensationalism aspect is in fact dragging Trump down. The other argument could be that without this sensationalism, without the distraction of Trump being Trump, that maybe it would be even worse, right? That he's that that if you don't do these briefings, so there, there's this kind of uh, you know dilemma here, which is Trump can keep doing these briefings in which he can't stick to the topic. He's going to say stupid stuff, which makes him look you know not presidential, not uh, capable. But there's the other aspect, which is if he's not out there sh- doing what he's doing. All that you're left with is an absence of federal governmental action, right? That that then then we can talk about the the real failures. Um, I I don't know. Do you think these briefings have hurt him more or have helped him more? Hmm. Nick, you want to go? No, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just I think it's a mix, uh, and I think this week was d- a disaster. I mean, the the, the Lysol, the disinfectant stuff, it, it, th- that that's really really bad for him. Big picture, I think they can i think to your point they can be valuable i mean think about the one thing trump is really good at is answering a hard question in a simple way and repeating it over and over and over again think about how you know the argument that you, you've brought up that, that they missed the boat that there were some opportunities to be more aggressive early whenever trump gets a hard question like that he brings up the china ban and he hammers it and he hammers it and hammers and that is effective being repetitive saying the same thing over and over again somebody says you know you didn't do enough he says no i, I banned china early then i banned europe it you know it is a incomplete argument at best Yes, you stop traffic and people coming from China, but there were so many other missed opportunities. But that doesn't matter because he can use that bully pulpit to reinforce that that message. So I do think that he has benefited from it to a point. And now some of the stuff he's done this week have undermined all of it. But, yeah, I agree with you that this up until this point may have played to his benefit. So, you know, there was a story that came out. Nick, I'm I'm glad to let you talk. You were just pause if you want to. No, no, no. Okay. I I was messing around with that. Okay. So there's a, there was a story that came out that you, you sort of referenced as well that, uh, uh, Republicans are kind of wanting to distance themselves. In fact, there was a story out yesterday or today that Republican, the sort of directive to Republicans was don't defend Trump, attack China, right? So yeah. the, the, if you're trying to play this out, then you don't, you know, don't, don't tie your, you know, don't hit your wagon to Trump. Um, we're going to, we're going to attack. And Trump obviously didn't, didn't like that. There has been sort of a conspicuous absence of Republicans defending Trump throughout this. Now, the, the the news is so saturated. I mean, this is such a strange time that we live in. There is so much coronavirus news and whatnot that, you know, there's lots of stuff happening. You know, Kim Jong-un might be dead and we don't, it's yeah. like not even really kind of breaking through in the news because, <laughs> because there is this massive pandemic thing going on. Do you think is the, people have been sort of expecting the Republican party to abandon or give up on Trump for three and a half years and, and they haven't. Is this in some way, 
different. It could be different in that we are getting close to election day. And if it's starting to look like Trump is toxic, you could see Republicans behaving differently. Um, or is it is it just more of the same? They may stop the defense of him. I mean, they, there's no place to go, right? They can't go to Biden. So, you know, they're still going to want a Republican in office. So it's not like they fully jump ship. Uh, but you're, it's, it's an important point to say that they've moved from defending him to talking about China, talking about the World Health Organization. You're seeing a lot of conversation, especially on Fox News. It's a lot about China. Um, and, and again, this week, something that we didn't even we didn't really hit on is that Trump has been attacking Fox News viciously this week. Um, and I think because they have pointed out some of the critiques and some of the problems with it. So, yeah, I, I think it's likely that you're going to see a, a distancing, but not a dramatic distance. I mean, what, what do you think? You think they're there's there's they're not going to run to Justin Amash, right? I mean, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, so Amash is an interesting I mean, that's we we don't have that on our speed rounds, but that's something we should come back to. Amash is looking at, at running as the libertarian candidate, which would throw a whole he's not going to win, but it could throw all sorts of wrenches into the electoral process. Uh, I think there might, you know, I, I think that you're right. They're not all going to go to Amash, but I think, uh, uh, you know, there might be a significant number who who do. Um, yeah, it's hard for me to see the Republicans, Republican Party really abandoning Trump at this point. He is the president. He's the presumptive. He is the nominee for the presumptive nominee for the party again going forward. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you start getting into kind of rational choice calculations. If you're a Republican running for I, I think it explains the absence of any comments. Right. If I'm a Republican running for re-election in the upcoming election. I don't want to be critical of Trump uh, because that unleashes all sorts of other problems. But I'm also not really wanting to tie myself to him. If I can just kind of keep my head down and, and not say anything, I, I, that's kind of what I see playing out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, I mean, it's the standard political calculus. You, know, you can't govern unless you're in power. So I, you know, it's the... the um, uh, fierceness, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, and um, uh, quickness that that Trump uh, levels these attacks at uh, at pretty much anyone, including Republicans. Um, yeah, to like you said, Phil, keep your head down and and wait until November. And realistically, this is where we are. I think that the uh, Amash presents a really interesting counterpoint because. I I could see him being the most successful third party candidate in uh, maybe Ross ever Perot? at this point. Yeah, I think oh, more than Ross Perot. Nick. It's um, I, I think people are exceptionally disillusioned with the way things are are going right now. And uh, obviously, we saw that in 2016, and we just didn't have a better alternative. No one's well. I know some people that voted for Jill Stein just because they don't know what the hell they were doing, but um. <laughs> It's uh, he's I think he's he's eloquent. He's young. He has a, a, a massive following behind him. And I think a lot of Republicans will will fall in line with that. And I think that there will be there will be a number of more centrist Democrats who don't want a senile old man uh, running the country. So there's also that. Um <laughs> Go ahead. Right, no, from a from a social science perspective, from a political scientist perspective, the idea of Amash running is really fascinating. I, mm -hmm. You know, I, because it, it will be a sort of natural test to the partisanship hypothesis, the idea that partisanship drives everything. And this will be a, if if he pulls a lot, 
if he just fizzles out, it proves that partisanship is really strong. People who don't, you know, they're going to vote Republican. They're going to vote for Trump because he's the Republican. If he pulls a lot of Republicans away, it undermines to some extent the idea that partisanship drives everything. It, it takes us back to a world in which maybe ideology and political ideas, in fact, drive things um, and not just not just party. And, and I don't know which of those would play out. I don't know how exactly that would play out, but it would be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. It is. I, I think it's a fascinating candidacy. And, and I'll be yeah, like like you guys, I'm, I'm curious to see the kind of support he ultimately gets. And then the other thing I would love to do is in a laboratory, see how he would do against Joe Biden, which I guess we will see that. But also then if Bernie was the nominee, right, there's there's got there's part of me that wonders whether Justin Amash just really was hoping Bernie would have been the nominee, because then you have a much bigger group who are uncomfortable with a, a far left agenda of a Sanders campaign that you could pull from the center. So I, again, I, 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 my, my thought is that he's probably not going to do quite as well because Biden, if, if again, if he's functional and if he comes out and he doesn't seem senile uh, is going to draw some of that centrist vote. Uh, but it really is really interesting. Cause again, like you said, Nick, he is a smart guy principled. Uh, there are a lot of people when we have Tom back on again, it'll be interesting because Tom really likes Justin Amash. Uh, you know, that question of, is it is is it more important to vote for somebody you believe in or to vote against somebody you see as dangerous? Right. So you, you could say that, you know, Justin Amash fits my ideological perspective. Or do you say, I just I'm afraid of what Donald Trump is doing to the country. So I'm voting against Trump, not for Amash. A lot of really, really curious things to kick around. Mm-hmm. Beers? Yeah, let's <laughs> do that. something else. Yeah. No, no, we're good. We're already 30 minutes in. So, Phil, why don't you start us off? When our first topic was just Trump's rhetoric, I thought, I don't know if we can talk for 30 minutes on that. I feel like we could keep going. That's That was that was good, Bill. We've done yeah. it for three years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tonight I'm having a, um, a beer from Definitive Brewing Company. Uh, it is their Spirals, uh, double dry hopped, double IPA. There's the can for those who are um, watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a nice, nice can. So I, there for a while, I was on a double dry hopped IPA kick. Um, and this is a double dry hopped double IPA. Uh, and it reminds me of why I liked those. I, you know, again, if you've been listening for several years, you know that I had bad experiences with double IPAs early on. Um, and this one is just, you know, excellent. I, I tend to think of double IPAs as sort of, you know, over the top. And this one, um, it's all the the double dry hop stuff that I like, that kind of hoppy flavor, but it's really smooth. This one's super citrusy. It's almost like lemony. Um, you know, you get lots that are kind of grapefruity uh, and it's it's got, it's very hazy. Um, all the stuff that you like about an IPA, the hoppiness, the citrusy, um, but not, you know, not that kind of over the top bitterness of hops. It really, really nice beer. Ooh, Phil, you drink good beers. Man. I mean, <laughs> there's something going on in New Hampshire where you get access. I mean, again, Chicago, we get great beers as well. But for New Hampshire, for being a small state, you're kind of isolated. You get access to some pretty darn good beers. I, I, I should give a shout out to Brewtopia in Keene, New Hampshire. That he hooks me up. Uh, you know, anybody within an hour's driving distance should go there to, for their beer. He does a fantastic job and has a great selection. Mm-hmm. Nick, Nick, what about you? Uh, so I actually had this, uh, last week after I had my first beer, but I didn't rate it. So I'm having another one because I decided not to go to the store again. Um, so I'm having a, a Burka, which is from cabinet brewing. So that's what it looks like. Um, is that, is that Dicka? I don't really know, to be honest. Uh, I'd imagine not because this is apparently from Serbia. So I don't know if they're big, big <laughs> fans out there, but 
you know, whatever. Um, didn't <laughs> that would be great. A beer from Serbia. <laughs> the picture is Mike Ditka. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I didn't realize it was from Serbia until I got it home. But uh, yeah, no, Serbia is known for their high beer quality, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. No, but uh, after drinking it, uh, yeah, everything feels a little bit more bleak and monochromatic. So it's definitely from <laughs> Serbia. Um, no, it's uh, so it, it's uh, it's a pale ale. Um, they didn't really specify what type. Um, so and and it it is kind of that. It's it's a very standard IPA. Something that. Um, we've had countless times on this podcast. It feels like something that, um, was like an early IPA that we would have seen several years ago. Um, it's not bad. Uh, it definitely doesn't have, it's not very pungent. Uh, every, the, the notes are, are pretty, um, mild. Um, yeah, it's, it's not overly effervescent. It's, it's, it's good. Like I said, honest to God, monochromatic seems kind of good. That's a good description of it. But... We have, that word hasn't been worked into our reviews yet, so I'm happy. <laughs> uh, well, I'm having a cat spit stout uh, from Second Shift Brewing out of St. Louis. Uh, there's the, the can for those on the video. Sounds horrible. Uh, what's it, it's not a great name, but it is a really, really good beer. There you go. Uh, it's an oatmeal milk, milk stout. Uh, I love its description. It says coffee, roasty, blah, blah, blah. It's a stout. Just drink it. It's really good. <laughs> and and it is. It reminded me, you know, so I, I'm a big stout guy during the winter. And then when spring hits, you know, it's time to transition to lighter beers, IPA, that sort of stuff. But this pulled me back. And given it's, I don't know where you guys are today, but it is raining. It is miserable. We've got a pandemic. It feels biblically, you know, biblical out there. I'm waiting for locusts to descend. Um so this was no, this is a really, really good beer. It's got just a little sweetness to it with that coffee. Um, fantastic. One of the better stouts I've had in a while. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I mentioned at the beginning, if you guys want to check out the beers we have on the podcast, uh, we will put them all on Untapped, which uh, you can download on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics in there and you will find all of our reviews. All right. Time for some speed around. Yeah. So as we all know, the U.S. withdrew from the Iran nuclear accord in 2018. Nevertheless, over the last week or so, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has made a rather creative legal argument that the United States is still a participant in the Iran nuclear deal. He's doing this so that the U.S., as a participant, can invoke a clause in the deal known as the Snapback Clause, which requires the U.N. Security Council to reimpose economic sanctions if Iran is found to be cheating. Since by its own admission, Iran has violated some aspects of the deal in recent months, the sanctions will automatically be reimposed once Trump raises the transgressions. Now, this begs all sorts of really important questions, including can you invoke clauses of an agreement that you yourself have said you are no longer part of? Phil, you and I teach courses on international law, and I, for the life of me, cannot remember states being able to embrace one part of an agreement while rejecting all of its other parts. Is this a common practice? <laughs> uh, it might be a common practice, but it is not a legal one. Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the idea that a country would, it is not unheard of or even unusual for a country to opt out of certain parts of a treaty, right? I mean, this is what the Britain did with the, the, the EU in which not in the most recent instance, but they, they were a member of the European union, but they opted out of the European monetary union. So they were a member of the EU, but didn't adopt the Euro. Other countries have done that. You can do that, but only with the 
essentially acceptance or permission of the other states that are a part of that treaty. At the beginning. <laughs> At the beginning, right. <laughs> and the things, the, the other part of this is that the parts of the treaty that you no longer uphold or you are unwilling to bind yourself to, other states are no longer bound to you on those parts of the treaty as well. So yeah, the, U <laughs> the U.S. can opt out of a treaty. They can't then also insist on being, you know, being able to, to, to enforce parts of the treaty that they have since abandoned. Other members of this could, in, in theory, do that. And, and, you know, it's not unusual to try this, right? The other instance I think of is the Treaty of Rome that created the International Criminal Court. And the U.S. signed on to that under, I think it was Clinton when that first came, came around. We never had any intention of joining the ICC, but only signatories could be a participant in, this, in the process of actually defining what crimes were, were uh, justiciable by the ICC. And so the U.S. signed on just so that we could, like, you know, throw a wrench into things. Um, so it's not uncommon to do that. But, but yeah, it's absurd to argue that we, we no longer believe in this treaty. We refuse to participate in it, but also we want to enforce parts of it. It doesn't work that way. It's so fantastic. And again, to your point, this is why we're all spending spending all our time on coronavirus. But there are other interesting stories going on there. Uh, Nick, th does this surprise you, Nick? Uh, no, not in any way, shape or form. Um, so <laughs> to me, this uh, this brings up the efficacy of international treaties as a whole. Um, it's uh, I think that the treaty itself was ill conceived to begin with. Um, but I think that what is probably more potentially problematic is what happens now that the U.S. has made this this pseudo demand. Like you said, uh, Iran has uh, violated a, a number of, uh, of of clauses uh, that are that are part of the, the current treaty, even though the U.S. isn't isn't part of it anymore. Uh, and the uh, European nations who are also a part of it seem to be at a loss of what to, to really do about it. There hasn't really been any any teeth to. Um, what Iran is doing uh, right now, or any response, I should say. So given this, uh, uh, given what um, the U.S. is saying, I'll be interested to see if the uh, European signatories find uh, a way to legally wrangle a way for the U.S. to institute this kind of behavior or have a, a um, uh, some sort of uh, method of bringing the, the U.S. in for a, a particular portion of this uh, even in a small way to allow them uh, or allow this, uh, this um, what's the best word for it? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, extremely late retribution to kind of take hold. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like it's uh, again, I, the, the treaty in my opinion was ridiculous to begin with. Um, it'll be even more ridiculous if this is allowed to go forward. <laughs> Well, here's so I'll take a different tack to this. I think you know a couple of things. One, this is why you stay in international agreements, right? You you stay in to have influence, and and we could have a broader conversation about whether the Iran nuclear deal was good or bad, and we've done that before. But but obviously there were some elements that the United States liked the idea that we could reimpose sanctions. Well, it's not just that we're you know not participating in parts of the agreement we're out of it completely so we have no influence over this organization and even if we could arm twist europe into doing it russia is part of this as well and russia has no interest in giving the u.s a win on this so this is this is stupid and again i, I think to phil's point it feels like the icc where this is another institution where the united states just attacks it 
Democrats and Republicans attack the International Criminal Court. But if you were to be a part of this, you can influence how the organizations work. Most global institutions benefit the United States. And we spend a lot of time in the, in the media bashing them. But we create these because they benefit us. This one, I think, benefited the United States. Uh, and by getting out, it undermines our ability to to control. Uh, constrain a real threat in Iran. So this is, again, good on Pompeo for trying to be creative here, but bad on Pompeo for getting out of agreement in the first part. It, I mean, it goes back to to some extent, and we did hear the bell, Nick, so I don't know what how that works. But oh, uh, I just went back to the old one. I okay, all right. Um, uh, the, it's, it's also the statement of, of soft power, which you and I, which we've talked about on here before, which is that as the U.S. kind of, uh, you know, ostracizes a lot of the international community for these short of short term wins, I, I can picture a time 30 years ago in which the U.S. is not a part of a treaty, but can pressure or can encourage its allies to enforce provisions of it because it is beneficial. But we have burned so many international bridges and pissed so many people off mm -hmm. that that is not an option anymore. So I, the idea that we would even, you know, that Pompeo would go to European allies and push them to do something. I don't see that even making that much of a dent. And that's not the way it's always been. You know, there was a time in the past where the U.S. did have that sort of power to influence its allies. It, it's it's a it's an interesting period in terms of, you know, U.S. international power right now. Well, and the sequencing matters as well. So Iran certainly is violating elements of the agreement, but they did not do that until the U.S. Right. withdrew, right? So it's it's, it's curious because the United on, States man. said, no, 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 but I mean, this matters, right? So Iran was was complying with the elements or the, 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 the specific parts of the treaty until the United States withdraws. And when the United States does that, we reimpose sanctions. So Iran says, OK, if you're going to reimpose sanctions, we're going to start violating the agreement again. Not I'm not happy about any of that, but it happened. And so then the United States says, well, well because you're violating uh, the agreement, we're not going to. Re so it's just, it's sort of absurd. The idea is right. we're out. We're not bound by the treaty, but you are right. Yeah, right. Um, so and again, and nobody wins because of this. Everybody would have been better off if if Iran were complying and the United States were still part of that. Uh, whole, another topic, Nick, <laughs> supposedly complying. I, I there is no part of me that thinks that they were 100 percent complying with that treaty while the U.S. was still part of it. There, there's just no there's no way they have never done that in any other international agreement. Iran does not abide by any sort of international agreement like that. It just it doesn't happen. I like I agree. Uh, reimposing sanctions gave them a good um why are people calling me constantly? Uh, gave uh, gave Iran uh, a, a a good uh, centerpiece to to create this narrative that well now we're going to you know if you're not going to abide by these rules then yeah obviously we're going to misbehave they always misbehave what the fuck are we talking about you're such a realist Nick <laughs> <laughs> all right well we should we should move on uh, to a hopeful topic now you guys may dow or I don't know you may dash my hopefulness but. Uh, most of our national attention has been focused on the federal government's response to the coronavirus. Yet in doing so, we've missed a major story. There is some fantastic work being done at the state level. In fact, we've seen a number of governors emerge as true bipartisan leaders. Two in particular stand out, Mike DeWine, the Republican governor of Ohio, and Andrew Cuomo, the Democratic governor of New York. Both are enjoying widespread bipartisan support. In fact, Cuomo's performance rating stands at 71%, according to a new, uh, a new Siena College poll released on Monday. 
Cuomo's rating among Republicans is 56%, which is 23 points higher than their rating of Trump. So self-identified Republicans trust Cuomo over Trump by a 23-point margin in New York. I mean, to me, that's what, stunning. What percentage of them think that Cuomo is a, is a Republican? So DeWine has been the rare Republican official who does not automatically fall in step with Trump. There are other other like Republican governors, uh, Larry Hogan of Maryland and Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, who have enjoyed bipartisan support for their handling of the crisis. Phil, they told me bipartisanship was dead, that our political system was doomed as our ugly, bitter divide uh, would prevent anything of substance from getting done. However, we have seen that it is possible for our politicians to get something done. And when they do this, the public reward them in a bipartisan fashion. Am I naive to be hopeful about this development? Yeah, please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm sort of torn on this. I'll, I'll say yes and no. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the part that all of this, the thing that this makes me think of is an alternative world in which someone else were president, right? So, uh, and I don't care what party, take Trump out and put in, you know, whoever, but Mitt Romney, right? Drop Mitt Romney in there. And I think an era in which we sort of push past by part, like by, past partisanship is entirely possible. The thing that would get it done is a crisis like this, where, where, as we've talked about, we talked about earlier with with the media, the all the partisan sort of sniping stuff is like sensationalist news. But when you get to a real crisis, it it forces people to look at the you know leadership and how you know how effective is somebody as a leader, how effective are their policies, um, and typically what happens is you you get some level of rally around the flag. If you look back to George Bush and the the surge in his approval after September 11th and. And, um, you know, that then drops as you get into the Iraq war. But in that period afterwards in which he's leading this sort of national response to September 11th, there's there's a lot of support. I In a situation like this in which somebody, you know, can sort of rise above partisanship and talk about the things that we need to do as a country, I think this could have been a remaking of, of the political order to some extent. But it's not what it feels like a, a squandered opportunity. The question for me would be to some extent when we, you know, at what point do we return to politics as normal? So if if we had had a leader that focused on policy and had pulled people together and made us realize that we have more in common than we have different, how long would that last? And that's the part where I think there's a possibility that you're you're naive. I think there's a possibility that you're not. I think there's a possibility that, you know, there's a lot of evidence that these big crises sort of remake our national consciousness and how we think of of ourselves and how we think about politics. So I, I, I guess all of that to say is I, I'm not hopeful that this is going to do it. But part of that, I, it, I think it could have happened if we had had different leaders in place. That's interesting. Nick, mm -hmm. don't 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 ruin my day. <laughs> so uh, no. um, I, I, you know, I, I think there has been more uh, bipartisan efforts now than we've seen in a while, especially at the state level. Um Based on what I've seen, though, they seem to be the exception rather than the rule. Uh, it, it seems like most of what you see and most of what's reported, and again, the reporting part is an important aspect of this, um, is state and local governments kind of taking matters into their own hands, depending on their political bent. So you have Georgia reopening. 
uh, restaurants and barber shops and tattoo parlors. And we're going to see how that goes. Uh, spas, right? Spas, obviously. It's very important. Uh, and then here in Illinois, you have uh, J.B. Pritzker uh, extending the stay-at-home order for another month. Uh, with almost no pushback, uh, a little pushback from uh, 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 Republican uh, legislators, uh, and we'll see how that goes. But without really, what what really bothers me about that is there doesn't seem there's been no indication that they're talking to businesses about a plan to reopen, what that's going to look like. Uh, you know, starting the process now so we can start the uh, the state economy again once this is all over. You just extended it for an arbitrary amount of time uh, and then force people to wear masks when you're telling us that masks are in short supply. Uh, and then on top of that, I already said on top of that, on top of on top of that, um, no indication that there's uh, additional help on the way for healthcare workers or uh, the uh, medical, the state medical system in general, where to the point where their uh, individual hospitals are furloughing nurses and having them do more with less and putting patients uh, and administrators and uh, physicians in even more danger than they were already. Um, and that's exceptionally uh, frightening to me. And then you have Newsom out in California, who's kind of sort of putting a plan in place, saying things are going to open up by the 15th and then lambasting people for going to the beach uh, during a quarantine uh, because there's a heat wave. But you said they could go. Like, I, there's, there seems to be no real as much as you have these kind of this coalescence of uh, regional um, uh, or states and into, into kind of regional factions to coordinate their efforts. You don't see a lot of that actually coming to fruition. And I think it's we're looking at what could have been through through rose tinted glasses. Um, no, I think it's complete bullshit and we shouldn't hope for anything. So there you go. I just wanted to save that for the end. Give us yeah, the no, hopeful side, Bill. Yeah. Isabel, <laughs> right, I have a couple of things I, th I think. It, you know, it doesn't have to be this way with Trump, right? I mean, I think we're seeing some good governance out of governors. And, and Nick, you're right. It's not all of them, but we're seeing enough out of both Democrat and Republican to say, like, there's something there. And that if you do a good job, the people will get behind you. So, Phil, you used the phrase, like, returning to politics as normal. And what occurred to me is, like, you know, our politics as normal is not normal, right? I mean, it would right. be nice to break out of that. And this was to your point, a really missed opportunity. I mean, this, you think about some of the great moments and great, like significant moments in history, you know, whether we're talking about the civil war or, or talking about FDR and the depression, like this could have been that moment for the current president. He is not embracing it in that way. He could have, if, if it had been different, you know, think about a Mitt Romney, Bill, Cl Bill Clinton often talked about how he, he wished that something big had happened during his president. So he could be a great president and nothing happened. Um, you know, it's wishful thinking, but I think there were a lot of other previous presidents who may have rose to the moment the way that George W. Bush did after 9-11. And Trump's not doing that, but we're seeing governors do that. So it, for me, it creates a little bit of hope that that you can find and that the public will get behind good governance when it occurs. So, I, I, Nick, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic that it's it's not a whole dumpster fire yet. Cool. Well, there's some hope. Good I wonder if I wonder if what that is is not a revival of uh, or a renaissance of bipartisanship or it is instead some renaissance of federalism right in that mm -hmm. people uh, you know yeah. federalism has been alive and well and and it's been a big sort of conservative party movement right that individual states should or conservative you know republican party movement that individual states should be able to do what they want but I wonder if there is a bipartisan 
sort of embrace of federalism as a result of this to some extent. There could be. Uh, Jeff Flake wrote an op-ed this week on the former governor of Senator, uh, Senator from uh, Arizona. Arizona. Yeah. yeah, making the argument that this isn't where the Republican Party wants to be. And that what has to happen is it has to fully implode with Trump and then move on. And, and his arguments for what that party looks like is something that I think would have broader appeal. You know, and, and so I, I think there is I think there's life after Trump. We'll, we'll see. You know. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's move to some not so happy news. So, all right. So uh, a woman who worked in Joe Biden's Senate office has accused the former vice president of sexually assaulting her in 1993. Tara Reid, the former Biden staffer, has stated she uh, filed a report because she has been harassed in the past and wanted to make it clear that I will be willing to go under oath or cooperate with any law enforcement regarding it because it did happen even if it was 26 years ago, unquote. Biden's campaign has had a categorically denied Reid's accusations, but Biden himself has not spoken about them. This creates a major dilemma for the Biden camp and the Democratic Party. They can ill afford to ignore the, uh, the claims after the Me Too movement and the Kavanaugh hearings. And while the Trump campaign may see this as a useful attack, they also may want to ignore any discussion of sexual assault, given the long list of women who have accused President Trump. Phil, this creates a rather surreal dynamic where Biden is in the process of picking a woman for his vice presidency at the same time he's facing allegations of sexual assault. What's your sense of how this will all play out? I, so I find this topic fascinating. I think we could spend 45 minutes talking about yeah. this if we wanted. Um, so so limiting it to five minutes, I mean, maybe we'll come back to this at some point. Kelly, my wife and I had a like probably a 45 minute discussion about this earlier today. There's so many elements to this and, and so many that, I, you know, I, the, I get kind of pulled in all sorts of different directions. Um, I think this is a real dilemma for Democrats. I mean, it's by the, the logic that they have put forth for a long period of time um, that I mean, this is this is, you know, that whether, whether you're looking at Kavanaugh or whatever else. Right. The idea of believe women and listen to the, the you know, assault allegations. This should be taken seriously. And, and we made the argument or I made the argument when we were talking about Brett Kavanaugh that this is not you know, it's not just some random job that the idea that, and, and this is, you know, there's a even if this was 26 years ago or whatever, this is not a random job. And when we talked about Brett, Brett Kavanaugh, we talked about this is a Supreme Court seat. We can find a highly qualified juror who doesn't have past allegations of sexual misconduct. We're talking about the president of the United States. That same standard should apply here as well. Now, there is an obvious double standard in that Donald Trump has been, you know, credibly accused by all sorts of women of the same thing. And so, you know, do do Biden's allegations rise to that? No. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore or, you know, bypass the allegations against against Biden. And I and I see a potential problem down the road. I mean, I think about Bill Clinton where there were some allegations before he was elected president and they were sort of dismissed or ignored. And they came back to haunt the Clinton administration during his term and ever since. And I think about that in terms of Biden. There's not this is not particularly surprising. You know, Biden has for years, you know, he he wanders up and gives women, you know, back rubs and sniffs their hair and all sorts of other things that indicate a, a lack of understanding about personal space and boundaries. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many elements to this. And, and you know, the idea, again, of of. There, there is still this, you know, kind of lesser of two evils. There's been this debate going on about Twitter, about there's a moral argument that Biden, even with his, these flaws, 
is so much better than Trump in terms of women's rights and all sorts of other stuff. So there's that aspect to it. That's a, that's a low bar. I know, I know. There's also the element where we've talked about before, which is that, you know, Democrats have this tendency to expect perfection in their candidates and people aren't perfect. And so people are going to have flaws, whether it's Elizabeth Warren and her history of, you know, claiming that she had Native American heritage, whether it's Joe Biden and, and this issue, whether, it, you know, any, can, any person is going to have flaws. And the question then becomes, what's the level of flaw that makes someone disqualified? So I, that's, I mean, all of that, <laughs> I, I, all of, we can have a conversation about each of those elements for a huge period of time. I, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure what to, where, what to make of all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nick? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you you kind of have all the points there, Phil. It's um, I, the question that I have with uh, a, a lot of the things, especially when it comes to the the partisan partisanship uh, and kind of cultural differences between Democrats and Republicans, is what is the the breaking point where the 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 narrative that you're espousing no longer makes sense or fits into the mold that you need it to. Um, yeah, I mean, we we talked for weeks about Christine Blasey Ford and everything, you know, surrounding Brett Kavanaugh and took it exceptionally seriously, regardless of I mean, I know I, I still have questions on it, but even uh, after her, her testimony, I found her credible. I, I, I like I didn't think that there was anything that seemed uh, untoward about what she was saying. So I don't understand why you wouldn't take this as as seriously as that, um, especially as more and more evidence keeps coming out uh, pretty much on a daily basis at this point. Um, what uh, in terms of the position uh, and the presidency, the presidency seems to be the only position where those kinds of questions and a lot of moral standards uh, and kind of societal norms that we expect someone in that level of government to to uh follow kind of get thrown out the window um which is it 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 gets more and more troubling as time goes on because it seems like the people that come into the office um care less and less about that uh and the parties care less and less about that as time goes on um so i like i as much as i i i think that there's certainly still questions um this is something that you have to contend with or the other theory is this is a good political opportunity for the Democrats to sideline Biden, uh, bring someone else in, uh, again, espouse the moral standard. We did what the Republicans couldn't put someone else in there who is a, a little bit more um, uh, with it, for lack of a better term, than Biden is, uh, keep their credibility um, but then there's the question of if you did that for political reasons or you did that for, right. you know, to, to align with your moral issues. Yeah. And, and, and I think that you have to be careful. Like this is going to be I'm sure the Democrats will screw this up. I have, I have no doubt about it. But it is it's a really important line, right? Because you you want to listen and you want to hear the claims. You want all the information to come out. If the Democrats don't investigate this or look in that has to be an investigation. But if 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 her story isn't heard, then suddenly you you are you are hypocrites right and in politics is wonderful for exposing hypocrisy at the same time you also don't want to denigrate a politician unless the claim is legitimate right so there has to be there has to be some good evidence here and and again this is not a, a legal matter because it's beyond the statute of limitations but it is a credibility matter so you know if i'm the biden camp 
and I'm innocent of this. I'm releasing every bit of information I have. If if the Biden campaign is is at all secretive about this or doesn't come forward, you know, shame on them, right? I mean, they have to do everything to show that they they're open to addressing this and that there's nothing wrong. Uh, so yeah, it's Democrats have to learn the lesson. You know, Phil, you brought up Bill Bill Clinton. They have to learn the lesson of Bill Clinton. There was a lot of information early on about him. Again, way more than Joe Biden. Um, and they didn't. Well, I guess it depends on what you're looking at, right? I mean, Joe Biden has done a lot of hair sniffing, but but Bill Clinton a had lot, a lot of right. That's yeah. not nothing, right? He has a long no, career right. of hair sniffing and back rubbing, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and Bill Clinton's infidelities were of a different type, right? Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's it, it's grounds for being president of the United States. So yeah, I think Democrats have to be aggressive on this, but also responsible. Republicans also have to worry about the claims of hypocrisy because they spent a lot of time saying you can't just accuse somebody and then they're out of a position. Right. I mean, so this puts everybody on their toes. You don't you don't think so, Phil? Well, I mean, so we talk about my thing. The way the Democrats screw this up is that they can't decide what they want to be like Republicans, I think, are it's mm-hmm. it's a, a not it's I don't even know if I'd call it a secret. There There is a an accepted idea, which is you know, made very clear by the Trump administration, which is the 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 like overall goal is more important than the individual principle, right? Like we're going to we need to win. You know, if we have to put up with shit in order to get justices on the Supreme Court or whatever, we're going to do that. Right. We'll swallow the bitter pill to get the higher the, the higher goal. And we talk about on here how Democrats need to be more cutthroat. And if the Democrats want to do that, then you swallow the bitter pill of Joe Biden is flawed. He may very well be a sex, someone who has a history of sexual assault, but it is more important to win and get our policy is in than that. But I don't see the Democrats doing that. On the other hand, the other op- the other uh, you know choice is to say we do care about principles, in which case this matters and we're done with Joe Biden. And and it is early enough that you could do that, right? You could at this point. We have not nominated, you know, the Democrats have not nominated Joe Biden. You could say we're done with Joe Biden. We're going to put in place, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, whoever, because the principle matters. The thing is, the Democrats want to play cutthroat, but they don't want to act like they don't want to admit it. They want to act like they're higher than that. And so what they're going to end up doing is they're going to, you know, pretend that the principle matters, but also like Biden, we want Biden to win. That's more important beating Trump. And they're going to somehow screw it up in that sense. If you would just accept one or the other, we're going to act on principle. And so Biden's done or Biden is flawed and he has all sorts of problems. But getting Trump out is more important than those individual things. And as shitty as that is, we're going to double down on that. And and I just don't they're going to waffle between those two, which is where they're going to end up with a nominee or a president who has credible sexual assault allegations against him. And it's going to be the worst outcome of all of them. Mm -hmm. In some ways, though, their hands are tied with the primary process, though, right? I mean, it's not the old school pre-1968 where the the party itself could say, like, all right, done with Biden. I mean, there are... There are delegates and, you know, assigned delegates. And that that makes this much, much more difficult. Um, Biden could fix that. Biden could 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 resign or step down Mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They will. What's that? No, they'll 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 find a way if if there's if they think the political uh, political calculus is not working in their favor, they will find a way. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, and, and another way to address it, again, if, if this didn't happen and the Biden Biden and the Biden camp feel comfortable in that, embrace this, right? And embrace it early on. Say, like, we will release everything. We will do everything we can. We will, you know, and, and show the transparency and make your credibility case to say, you know, we're sorry she believes this, but we don't think it happened, right? And then let that, let that debate occur. And if you're a Democrat, let it happen earlier. Don't wait until after the convention, because then it's just a disaster. Then it's the Kavanaugh hearing where... You're forced to make these difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I was pretty skeptical about it until I heard that uh, he said, come on, man, I heard that you liked me. And then I figured it was very, very credible. So <laughs> it's, just so, it's so awful. It's such a yeah. such a Joe thing to say. <laughs> you just wish that we I mean, I don't know. I mean, we've had presidents where that was never an issue. Right. I mean, I think George W. Bush, Barack Obama, you don't have to worry about those things. Bill Clinton, you did. Right. And in previous presidents, you did. Mm-hmm. Why can't we find better? Um <laughs> There were a whole bunch of candidates who didn't have long long histories of allegations of that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, socialist. What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> right, right. When will we learn? All right. Final topic. So for this final talk, topic, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on what you see as the more troubling image and or situation. All right. Image number one, social distancing El Salvador style. On Monday, El Salvador's president released a startling photo or start released startling photos of hundreds of jailed gang members stripped to underwear and pressed together in formation, part of a punishment for an outbreak of violence. If you haven't seen these, jump online and look at them. The images were published from the president's own Twitter account and clearly violate social distancing measures that we're following all over the world. Again, the, the image is just awful. All right. Image number two. The Biden deepfake. We've covered Trump's bizarre Twitter behavior uh, this week earlier, but we didn't note that at 8.25 p.m., he became the first president to tweet out a deepfake video. The president retweeted an account that had posted a video of former Vice President Joe Biden crudely and obviously manipulating uh, to show him twitching his eyebrows and lolling his tongue. The caption read, quote, Sleepy Joe is trending. I wonder if it's because of this. You can tell it's a deepfake. Because Joe Biden isn't covering for him. All right, gentlemen, I ask you, which is the more disturbing image? Phil, why don't you start? Uh, so I'm going to have my cake and eat it, too, at this, <laughs> by, <laughs> by, by choosing each of them in their own way. I, I think in a specific instance, um, uh, the El Salvador thing in, in its specifics is oh. deeply troubling and disturbing. And, and you know, just the from a like it is a picture of a human rights violation, right? Yeah. The way in which yeah. people are 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 it, it's it's surreal. The picture. Uh, so, in the specific instance of of that, I, I think that is the more disturbing of these two. In the general sense of things, what the the Biden video sort of portends for the future for of American politics is is really disturbing. The idea of altered videos and altered like. The, the sort of detachment from reality of things that really concerns me. I mean, in this case, it's like in the tweet acknowledging that it is a fake video. And so in that sense, it's not particularly this particular instance isn't disturbing, but on a larger scale, politicians like engaging in this game is, is really worrisome. Now that I've said all that, I think maybe I should go back to the human rights violation is the more disturbing of the two things. <laughs> You're persuasive, Nick. <laughs> um. I don't know. Deep fakes are funny. I found that entertaining, to be perfectly honest. But uh, no, you know, it, we talk about rhetoric and what Trump says. I, I, I'm frankly not even phased by that anymore. I'm kind of shocked that you guys are. <laughs> but um, uh, no, the uh, the the other image was 
that's especially right now uh what we're seeing the um you were saying bill that uh as you were you were doing the uh, the intro to this that these are social distancing things that we are we're all following and realistically in the majority of the world that's not what's actually happening especially in the third world uh we're we're talking about social distancing and and a response to to a, a global pandemic and what we have here is just light years away from what people are experiencing in other countries, especially a place like Nicaragua or, or Central America or South America or any other place uh, around the world. Take your pick. Um, it's the um, consolidation of power, the brazenness of authoritarian regimes, uh, and then the aftermath of what this is going to mean for the global economy, for global travel, uh, the ability to trust other countries in their response to this and and be able to to open up trade with countries that have not followed the same standards that we have or other countries have um and then the uh, again the 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 edicts and laws that are being put in place to suppress people's uh, uh freedom of speech or or ability to move around or uh just simply dissent uh, especially in terms of uh a federal authority um or a, or a national authority, depending on what you're talking about, is um, that's this is a a trend that isn't again we're we're talking about nothing but the the coronavirus pretty much. But what comes out of this is I think a, a, a scarier, more authoritarian world than what we went in with, um, and that's that's a trend that I think is going to have far-reaching repercussions uh definitely more so than than uh the president retweeting deep fakes not even well done deep fakes that one wasn't very good and it was intentionally i think poorly done yeah no mm-hmm. I, I i tend to agree with you nick that i think there were good especially if you look at what's happening in hungary right now and in other places we're seeing authoritarian systems are going to benefit from this and and that image in from el salvador it, it just it really upset me i mean and, and again you have all these individuals it took them a long time to stack them together to lean them against each other uh i mean we're in the united states we're having these conversations about the danger of coronavirus spreading in prisons and here you have the president of el salvador forcing these prisoners together and then tweeting it out right this wasn't like he did it and kept it secret like he tweeted those images out so that that's awful it's terrible um yeah it is it is the more disturbing image that being said i am freaked out about deep fakes right and this this is <laughs> the first stage right this is like this is moment one where the president does this and it's silly and it's funny and biden looks you know sort of not like himself but this is the future and we're going to see more and more of this probably not from the president himself but for from others around them and that's I mean, we know we know about the echo chambers and how messages can be spread. And, and this one was scary in terms of the potential. Uh, so I, I think the long term impact of deep fakes is going to be devastating for our, for the for the international system in terms of political dynamics. I'm I'm really worried about it, Nick. You know what would help with that? A free and unbiased press to be able to no. uh, kind of look at that stuff. No. You know, you know, no, you're right. We're totally screwed. <laughs> oh yeah that uh something nick something (laughs) it's something isn't it um well thanks guys i i I think this this worked out pretty okay this week um youtube uh let us know uh in in the comments or uh shoot us a, a tweet or something if it didn't work uh if you liked it also do the same thing um 
So uh, you can follow us and, and tweet us uh, at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Uh, Facebook uh, at Barstool Politics. Uh, Beers We Try you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, um, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, <clears throat> SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and our merch line, you can find a direct link on our social channels, um, T-shirts, uh, hoodies, mugs, fun stuff like that. Definitely check it out. Um, anything that I missed? That was really good, Nick. <laughs> Hopefully we work out the technical issues before next week. But overall, I think it went pretty well. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see you guys next week then. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> 